Um, we're going to jump right into the next couple of petitions, the second and third petition. Last week we saw um, our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name. The first petition is about God's name being renowned or, or being regarded as holy and glorious. And so now we're going to look in chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And these are two petitions that are put together and so it's one week in the workbook, week three. I don't know about you, but if you're one of those collector type people, and I know this to be true of some people, um, you collect various things. But one of the things that I started to collect, and this is kind of odd because we don't travel very much, but I collect those Starbucks mugs, you know, like I've been there kind of mugs or whatever. And so our family took a trip to the East Coast and I uh, got a couple mugs from like Boston and Philadelphia and things like that. And then we went to Israel and Jordan. So I got a mug from Starbucks uh, in Jordan and also one in London. And you're probably asking, why London? Well, Israel doesn't have Starbucks. And uh, we stopped in London. So I, I figure, hey, why here? while we're here, might as well just get a mug. So uh, I've never been outside the airport in London, but nobody needs to know that. <laughs> so I have these mugs here. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know what? Um, I use these mugs as kind of decoration. Um, they're underneath the Keurig in my office, and so technically somebody could use it for coffee, but I'd rather them not. Um, and it, it made me, like, like you, I just started laughing because I was thinking, how funny is it that I have coffee mugs, which everyone understands are, are to be used for a hot beverage for you to drink it, and yet I'm telling them, no, don't use it for that. It's decoration. It made me realize, you know what, when you look at a coffee mug, it, everything about its design tells you exactly what it's meant to do. Like it, it's supposed to have a hot beverage inside of it because obviously it can contain a liquid, but also there's a handle and so you don't burn your hand. So it's like hot liquid and it has an opening at the top. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but you can blow on it to cool it down and you can also, you know, drink it. And it's usually a good portion. It's not like a five gallon bucket. And so it's, it's a portion that most human beings will be able to drink. And I started to realize, you know what, when you look at the design of the thing, you start to realize what its intention is. Its use is really found in what it is. And then if you realize, you can use a coffee mug in all kinds of wrong ways. So if you decide, I'm going to use a coffee mug to transport soup uh, in my car from this location to that location, you're going to spill on yourself. Let's just be honest. That's just going to happen. And uh, if you decide a coffee mug is a perfect you know, vehicle to be able to pour gasoline in your car... You're going to spill a lot. Or if you decide, you know what, I love eating pot roast. I'm going to cook up a pot roast. I'm going to fit it in my coffee cup. You're going to realize you got issues. And uh, it's not going to fit. And so the Greek word of this, the, the, the idea that something is purposefully designed is called telos. Telos, T-E-L-O-S, telos. And what it means is that there's a thing that is designed particularly in order to accomplish a purpose. And so its purpose is tied to its design. Now, one of the questions I've always had is, when you think about the church, what is its telos? What is its purpose? What is it designed to do? What is a church supposed to be accomplishing? And by extension, what does it mean to follow, be a follower of Christ? What, what are you made to do? What is your purpose? How should you function? Telos. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the first question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the chief telos? What is the chief purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
I remember when my daughter was young, she asked a really penetrating question. She said, Daddy, if, if Jesus came to save us from our sins and, and help us to go to heaven, then why don't we just go to heaven now? And I said, well, because God has big things for us to do here on earth. And that's the telos. But the question is, what are those big things? What is it that God is purposing us for? Why are we made individuals into a body? Why are we to never consider ourselves individual Christians, but always to consider ourselves individual Christians who have been made a part of a community? And I think it's because of this petition. I believe this petition in verse 10 of Matthew 6 is the telos, it's the purpose for why there is a church. Jesus said, pray then like this, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think this is the purpose for why there is such thing as a church. So, Father, we are asking by your mercy and grace, grant us all that we need to understand your word. Grant me especially the kind of grace I need to speak well. God, help me to say what is in accordance with your word. If there's anything which is outside of your word and unhelpful, would you cause your people to forget it immediately? But if there is such words that will be edifying to your people, that will build us up in Christ-likeness to full maturity, as Ephesians 4 says, then bring those words to my mind. Let me say them and let your people hear them. For your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the first thing that you probably think to yourself, at least I do and I did, was the three words, your kingdom come, implies that God's kingdom is not yet here. We need to pray for its coming. Vinnie Angelo, who, who wrote this week's workbook, uh, week three, he does a really good job of unpacking why that is not the best way to understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is actually already here, and he goes to great lengths to establish that fact, and so I won't belabor that. I'll just simply say the kingdom of God is, in fact, here. There's many reasons why we know that to be true. It's not something that we have to wait for in the distant future. It's very present, very real, very here. But many people miss that reality. And the reason why they miss it is because they have expectations which go unmet. And it isn't because God isn't faithful to his promises. It's because perhaps the expectations we have aren't necessarily the ones we ought to have. Or at least their fulfillment of them aren't what we are expecting. We see this with the Jewish people. In fact, the Jewish people had a lot of unmet expectations concerning Jesus and the kingdom of God. You see, their background, Jeremiah 23, 5, they had a messianic expectation. You read about this in the workbook, but here's what one of the messianic expectations, this is what they were expecting when the Messiah would come and bring God's kingdom. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so the people expected that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. That he would reign as a king. And we will see that as well. That he would execute justice and righteousness in Israel from the location of Jerusalem. That was their expectation. And since the Jews were under Roman occupation and the temple had been rebuilt 
in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, and also that King Herod had expanded the temple complex, the people were expecting that when the Messiah shows up, he's going to overthrow the Roman occupation, he's going to establish God's kingdom, he's going to reign from David's throne as king of kings, and it's all going to be um, through militaristic force. That was their expectation. And then when Jesus comes, he comes preaching that he is the Messiah and the kingdom of God has come. And the people are kind of going, I don't think so, bud. You got no weapons. You got no military. You got no money. You're not a really a political leader at all. You come from Galilee. That's like the other side of the railroad tracks kind of thing. You are a blue-collar laborer. And you're the Messiah? Not so much. And so they didn't see what Jesus was talking about because their expectations were not necessarily what they ought to be, and therefore their expectations were unmet, and therefore they didn't see Jesus for who he was or what he was preaching. For instance, when Jesus went to Nazareth, you can read about this in Luke chapter 4, he goes to a synagogue and was his custom. He goes there and they hand him a scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll and he sets it down and he finds Isaiah chapter 61. And there he begins to teach in the synagogue that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then he ends, he folds up the, the scroll, hands it back to the synagogue attendant, and he sits down, and the whole room is silent. And everyone's looking at him like, you going to say anything? This is like a cliffhanger. And what comes out of Jesus' mouth next is profound. He says quite simply in front of everyone, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What did he just say? He just said, I'm the Messiah. I came preaching liberty. I came preaching forgiveness. I came preaching all the things about the gospel and the kingdom of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, you see Jesus explicitly in the region of Galilee saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so the Messiah has come because Jesus has come. And Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jesus came, the Messiah came, and therefore the promised kingdom of the Messiah has also come. Now what I want to do is I'm going to ask and answer four questions about the kingdom of God. And I think asking and answering these four questions will kind of give us a flavor of this concept of the kingdom because the concept of kingdom is huge throughout the scriptures. And it's something that we need to make sure that we understand, because, and especially because there's a lot of popular books out there um, that are talking about the kingdom of God, and they're a little bit, like, whacked out. And so, we, yeah, we need to sober up and, and kind of have a better conception of the kingdom. I'm trying to say this politically correct. Anyways. So four questions about the kingdom, okay? They're all in your notes, so you don't have to take vigorous notes or anything like that. You can get it later or whatever, but if something sticks out to you, write it down, memorize it, whatever you want to do. But these are in the sermon outlines. But here's the first question. Simply, what is God's kingdom? What is God's kingdom? And my answer would be this. God's kingdom is God's reign over his people for their good and for his glory. 
So the kingdom of God is God's reign over his people for his people's good and ultimately for his glory. Now why this is a good definition, I think, is because it encapsulates a couple of points which are crucial to understand about God's kingdom. God's kingdom specifically is a redemptive kingdom. Now, we understand God is the king of all creation. Like, he he rules and reigns over all things. But there's a particular nuance about God's kingdom that we need to pay attention to. When you read in the Bible about God's kingdom, it really is reserved most explicitly for his own people. And he rules over his own people for their good, but ultimately for his own glory. His glory is the more important purpose than our good. But in our good, he gets the glory. Another definition comes from Graham Goldsworthy. He's a scholar from Australia. He says it like this, another way to think of it conceptually. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. So these three things are critical. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And this is traced throughout the Bible, and I don't have enough time to get through it, but I'll give you two, three examples. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden ruled under God's word, his promise. You have the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is God's people in God's place, which is the promised land, being ruled under God's law. And now you have the church, which is God's people. And we'll talk about God's place in a second. Hold on but being ruled by God's spirit and his word. Now the question is, where do you visibly see the manifestation of a people who are ruled by God's word and spirit? And the answer is you see that on earth in the gathering of his people in things called churches. So the church is the place in which you actually see the kingdom of God on earth, which means by extension, this is not a, you know, make you feel bad about not coming to church, but if you don't come to church, you should at least pause and ask yourself some pretty hard questions like, how much do I value the kingdom of God? We have to ask that question. If it's true that the church gathering is where we see the kingdom of God most explicitly on earth, and then we decide sleeping in is better or football is better, we have to ask the question, do I really consider the kingdom of God as first importance? You See what I'm saying? All right. Now, if we think about how you become God's people and about God's place and about God's rule, we need to go to Scripture to kind of see how this fleshes out. Colossians chapter 1, in verse 13 and 14, Paul writes, God has delivered us, from the domain of darkness. The word domain means kingdom, the rule. God has delivered us from the rule or domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what Paul does is lays out for us the concept that there is two kinds of kingdoms. There's a kingdom which is ruled by darkness or sin and evil, And then there's the kingdom of God's beloved son, which is God's kingdom. And not everyone is born into the kingdom of God's beloved son. In fact, 
only those who get transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son are actually citizens of his kingdom. So that means unless you somehow get transferred to the kingdom of God, you are not in the kingdom of God. Your default position is you are ruled by darkness or sin and evil. And that is what the Bible teaches, that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Everyone is born in sin. Now, if you notice, being transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son means we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. And so what is characteristic of the kingdom of God is the forgiveness of sins. And the question is, how do you get your sins forgiven and thus be transferred from the kingdom or domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son? How does that happen? Revelation 5, 9, and 10. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, and the referent there is to Jesus. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed, and the word there is purchased. You purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus was killed, and the blood that was shed was a ransom by which he purchases people for himself. And this people whom God purchases by the blood of Jesus come from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. Literally every kind of human being on planet earth. And those blood-bought people are not given a kingdom. They are made a kingdom. And those blood-bought people will reign, that's kingdom language, on earth. Now that last bit may be confusing, and you're asking yourself the question, how, does, how do we reign on earth? Well, that's one of those things we're projecting the new heavens and new earth. And I know some people think there's a spiritual salvation and an earthly salvation and they're two distinct things and all that kind of stuff. And you go, no. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. It's two poles saying from alpha, omega, beginning and end, heaven and earth, God encompasses all things and we will rule and reign in the new heavens and new earth because there we will be kings and priests living in God's kingdom. Or think about it how Jesus put it. John chapter 18, Jesus is having a Discussion with Pontius Pilate. I say the word discussion in quotes because really he's being interrogated. Pontius Pilate asked him the question, are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, verse 36 of John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Jesus goes on to say, yes, I am indeed a king, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So here's how I would summarize it. God's people are the blood-bought people over whom God rules as their redeemer. Now, where do we find God's blood-bought people gathering under the headship of Jesus Christ or under the authority of Jesus Christ? It's literally called the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus is the head of his body, the church. The church is the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. 
I am not saying that the kingdom of God is the church. What I'm saying is, in the church, you have a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's the place where God rules by his spirit and by his word over his people as his people gather for praise and glory of God. So if you want to experience what in part the kingdom of God is going to be like or what it is like, your involvement in a local church is going to be the best way. Now, I know that sounds goofy because you're like, wait a minute, you know, like being a member at a, you know, a, a gym and the church, like I feel like those are the same things. Well, you shouldn't. <laughs> the church ought to be comprised of people as diverse as possible. Because the people of God are supposed to be a blood-bought people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. What I love about Golden Hills is that God has seen fit by His grace to gather a wide variety of people. We have many languages spoken in our church. We have many people from different nations in our church, as it ought to be. So not only are you gathering with people who are unlike you, but also you are gathering with people who share the same experience that you have of being saved by grace through faith. When people gather in a church and they only want to worship with people just like them, or they only want to worship with people who vote like them, spend their money like them, vacation like them, dress like them, talk like them, what you are asking for is an experience of this world. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so the diversity that we ought to experience in church gives us a flavor for what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like when the new heavens and new earth come in finality and fullness. And as we read in Revelation 21 and 22, it's amazing because even the cultures of the nations will be brought into the new heavens and new earth. Oh, that's good. So there's more to be said about that. We're going to do a series on the church in the fall. So we'll be back then. Second question, when did the kingdom come? Well, we've kind of already answered this, but it has already been inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. What I mean is, Jesus already said, like in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus already announced that when he came, the kingdom of God has come. And the way that he proved it was through what he did by way of miracles. For instance, when he was casting out demons, he said this in Luke eleven twenty. but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the reason why, and you could read about this in the workbook, the reason why Jesus does miracles is not because it's an evangelistic technique. He does miracles because it proves that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord of all creation. But this leads to some other questions. If the kingdom of God is already here and among us, then why do we experience things like sin and injustice and hunger and evil and various other things? If you're not asking this question, you're not thinking seriously about these topics. If the kingdom of God is seen in and through the church, how exactly is that possible if people in the church sin against each other practice injustice, turn a blind eye to hunger, and don't give a rip about social inequality, things like that. How, how is that possible? 
And the answer would be, well, you have to remember that the kingdom of God has already come, but it's not yet fully here. It's not yet fully here. There's more coming. Now, you may not believe that, so let me prove it. (laughs) Think about the perplexities that we find in Scripture all over the place. I'll give you a few. Remember, already, not yet. Kingdom's already here, but not yet fully. Already, not yet. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace. No debate there. And yet we read in Romans 13 that says salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Wait, are we saved or is it near? Yes. Oh, okay. So Colossians 1, as we've already seen, says we've been, have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And yet Galatians 5 talks about how we're going to receive a kingdom. So were we transferred or are we yet to receive it? Yes. Okay. Galatians 4 says that we've been adopted, and yet Romans 8 says we await our adoption. Yes. Okay. Do you see where I'm going with this? Or you have like Hebrews 10, we've already been perfected for all time, and yet Galatians 3 says we are still being perfected. The reality is this, the kingdom of God has already come, but is not yet fully here. And therefore, we are saved, we are perfected, we are adopted, we're being saved, we're not yet adopted, we haven't received the kingdom yet, because it's not yet here. Which is the reason why we pray your kingdom come. It's not as if the kingdom of God is not already here, we're praying it, that it would come more fully now how does the kingdom of God come more fully now that's our third question here's our answer it comes as God's people preach the gospel to all people by which God's spirit produces life and obedience so the kingdom of God comes more fully now as God's people the church preach the gospel which centers on the person of Jesus about his life, death, and resurrection. And as we preach, we are told, like in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit uses that speech act as the means by which he grants new life to people so that they are born again. Because remember John 3, Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not see nor enter the kingdom of God. So you have to be born again, and the Holy Spirit is the only way to be born again. And how do we receive the Holy Spirit to to cause us to be born again? We have to hear the gospel, Ephesians 1.13, and we have to repent and believe it. And in so doing, the kingdom of God actually comes now more fully. Because those who have been bought by Jesus are born again by the Holy Spirit, And the same Holy Spirit which gives them new life also empowers them to live in obedience. Now, there's at least two ways to not bring the kingdom of God more fully now. And they are the two most popular ways most people think it's the way to do it. And so I need to point this out. And I'm going to be totally stereotypical and I'm going to get emails. I know it, but I'm going to do it anyway. There is a theologically liberal approach and a theologically conservative approach to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. Theologically liberal approach typically is this. 
We are going to bring the kingdom of God on earth through humanitarian efforts and good works where we will love people and usher in this love feast and fest and uh, everyone will be happy and, and all this kind of stuff. The theological liberal approach basically says you can bring the kingdom of God in if you just love people enough and serve them enough and do good enough, the kingdom of God will come. And that kind of mentality, what we're really saying is the whole purpose of God coming is to help you become a better version of yourself. And if we can just help people become a better version of themselves, then the kingdom of God will come. Because the kingdom of God is really about you maximizing your inner potential. And therefore, God is not infinitely sovereign. God is just infinitely resourceful. He's like Costco. You just go to Costco and get what you need. And there's a lot of stuff. And so go to God. He has a lot of stuff. Now, there's also the the theologically conservative approach, which is a temptation equally as strong in a different direction. And it's basically this kind of idea that the kingdom of God can actually be ushered in here on earth through political power and through socioeconomic or, or, or cultural influence. And so some people have got it in their minds that if we just vote the right candidate in and we support the right kinds of social things, then we can usher in the kingdom of God. For instance, if we can get prayer back in our schools and Bibles and the Ten Commandments statues everywhere, the kingdom of God will naturally flow. Here's the problem. Good works and humanitarian work, love and service, political action, sociological influence, all of those things, they are good things. They are not unimportant. Did everyone hear what I just said? Because this is where you, you've already checked out and you're already like, dude, I'm writing him an email. I cannot believe he just said that. <laughs> a flourishing, healthy human society must have humanitarian good works and love. And it also must have a good political system and cultural influencing where we are pursuing human flourishing. It has to have that. Here's the problem. None of those things can actually usher in the kingdom of God because none of those things can transform the human heart. None of them. The only way a person's heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh is if they are circumcised by the Holy Spirit, which is to say if they hear the gospel and repent and believe it. So no amount of perfect candidates, no amount of perfect love, loving service will ever usher in the kingdom of God. The only way for the kingdom of God to come is if human hearts are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son by being purchased by the blood of Jesus and through the indwelling Holy Spirit to be adopted into the family of God and that same Holy Spirit empowers them to live obedient to what God has commanded. In other words... The church has to preach the gospel to all people by which God's spirit will produce life and obedience. And in no other way is the kingdom of God ever going to come upon earth. What I'm saying is we are praying for the great commission to be fulfilled. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, all nations, you hear it? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, many of us are all kinds of hot and bothered about the culture we live in. And many of us are pursuing humanitarian works and loving service, and we're thinking, this will do it. Or we're all hot and bothered, and we're like, I just need this candidate, I just need this political action, and this will do it. And the one thing that oftentimes many churches neglect is the one thing that actually does it. It's when God's people faithfully preach God's word. And that's the only way. Now, I love Romans chapter 1. Many people just like scoot over Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, because it's entitled Greetings. And uh, typically we think of letters when it starts with greetings, we're like, nah, 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 let's get to the good stuff. And I want to say, this is the good stuff. Let me read it. And then I'm going to point out some, some major things in here which I think are significant. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and I want you to listen for Great Commission, Lord's Prayer, Hallow Be Your Name, uh, uh, that kind of stuff, gospel stuff. Listen for it, okay? Intently listen for it and look for it. It's there, it's everywhere. Called to be an apostle, that is a messenger, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Okay, now let me go back and revisit the main points. I'll put these in my own words, but just listen to the first six verses of Romans 1 and see if you can hear my, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the great commission, and these kinds of things. Listen to this. Paul is called to be a messenger, an apostle. God set him apart for the gospel of God. The gospel was promised in the Old Testament through the prophets, and the gospel is concerned chiefly with God's Son, God's son is a descendant of David in accordance with the Davidic covenant, confirming that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is declared God's son by the spirit of holiness, and how the spirit declares, makes this declaration, is through his resurrection from the dead. And through Jesus, we all receive grace, but Paul especially received his apostleship or messengership. And Paul was sent as a messenger to preach the gospel with the aim of, of bringing about the obedience of faith. This is all for the sake of God's name. Hallowed be your name. Therefore, the gospel ministry of the church is to happen among all nations. That's just a, a recounting of those passages. So therefore, we as God's people who are called the church, we are to preach the gospel to all peoples. And by that preaching... God's Spirit will declare Christ to be the Son of God and produce life and obedience for God's name's sake. And when this happens, the kingdom of God comes. This is the church's telos. 
This is the church's purpose. This is the church's function. This is what the church was designed to do and be. And therefore, the purpose for which we corporately exist as a church, the purpose for which we exist is to pray that God's kingdom would come, but then also get about doing the work of gospel ministry so that God's kingdom will actually come. Sometimes we just need to answer our own prayers. What I mean is this. When you meet someone and they're like, man, I'm in need. I need 10 bucks, you know, like whatever, whatever. And you got 10 bucks in your pocket. And you're like, oh, really, dude? Let me pray for you that God will supply your need. Don't you know that God has supplied their need? His 10 bucks is in your pocket. <laughs> sometimes we have to answer our own prayers. So when we pray your kingdom come, sometimes we just need to get busy having the kingdom come through gospel ministry. So why do we pray your kingdom come? Well, we pray for God to continue bringing his kingdom through the gospel ministry of his church among all peoples. The reason why we pray your kingdom come is we are praying for God to continue bringing his kingdom through the gospel ministry of his church among all peoples. And therefore, we are on mission to go to the nations, for it is all peoples that must hear the gospel. We must be a church which is committed to the supremacy of Christ in the gospel, for there is no other means under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ alone. And we must be praying for it because we don't bring the kingdom of God in our own power. It is God who brings the kingdom of God. And we pray for God to bring the kingdom of God through us, not because of us. I once heard this illustration. If Jesus, it's as if Jesus wrote the greatest musical composition of all time. And now we as the church, having been captivated by his music, we now perform his music as musicians before all the world, which is full of music and cacophony. In other words, we pray because the world is in need. And what the world needs most is not love or politics. What the, what the world needs most is Jesus. And people get Jesus when Jesus' people give people Jesus. It's kind of like this. This is going to be a shame, shaming thing. I sometimes hear folks going, oh my goodness, you see this next generation? These kids are they're terrible. What's wrong with them? And yet at the same time, we lack volunteers and ministry partners and children's ministry and student ministries all the time. And sometimes I get overwhelmed by that and I just go, Lord, what if we as a people quit bemoaning things and just got busy getting our hands dirty in gospel ministry? What if we actually discipled our children? What if we actually gave the kids in our church the gospel? What if we actually labored with them? And oh, how we've been praying all weekend for our counselors who were up at middle school winter camp, that God would use them powerfully in the ministry of the gospel to bring many of those kids to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would get busy. Here's what N.T. Wright says. 
about praying your kingdom come. This is kind of long. Hang with me. I'll make it interesting. He says praying your kingdom come means for a start that as we look up into the face of our Father in heaven and commit ourselves to the hallowing of his name, that we look immediately out upon the world that he made and see it as he sees it. Thy kingdom come. To pray this means seeing the world in binocular vision. That is, we see it with the love of the Creator for His spectacularly beautiful creation, but we also see it with the deep grief of the Creator for the battered and battle-scarred state in which the world now finds itself. Put these two things together and bring the binocular picture into focus. What do you see? The love and grief They join together into a Jesus-shaped, kingdom-shaped, dare I say, they come to be the shape of the cross. And with this Jesus before your eyes, pray again, your kingdom come. We are praying for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil. And for heaven and earth to be married at last. For God to be all in all. And if we pray this way, we must, of course, be prepared to live this way. So we pray this for the world and we also pray it for the church. But this cannot simply mean that we want God to sort out our messes so that the church can be a cozy little place without problems or pains. We can only pray this prayer for the church if we are prepared to mean it. And here's what we mean. Lord, make us a kingdom. Make us a community of healed healers. Make us a people who are rescued rescuers. Make us a fine-tuned orchestra to play the kingdom music for the whole world to hear. Make us, in turn, servants of our Lord and Christ and King, for we are the few that have a message for the many. The kingdom of God is not exclusively spiritual or physical. It is actually both. We are a blood-bought people. And what God has for us as blood-bought people is to bring his kingdom in, not by our own creativity and ingenuity, but he's already given us how to do it. And that is when his blood-bought people share Christ, the gospel. And when we, in sharing the gospel, go to the nations and proclaim it, then the kingdom of God comes, for the Holy Spirit will come upon all those whom God has chosen, and they will be adopted, and they will be empowered to live obediently. And in that way, God gets all the glory, and these people who thought their joy was in their stuff will find out that their truest and everlasting joy is a person, not a thing. And they will see Jesus is all satisfying. So we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to say this real quickly about God's will. What does Jesus mean, your will be done? In the Bible, there's three conceptions of God's will. God's sovereign will, which is to say it's what it, God does whatever God wants to do. And we see that in Isaiah 46.10, that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not saying that he simply knows everything. What he's saying is I declare everything. And according to the counsel of my will, I will do what I'm going to do. The second will of God is the preceptive. Now, you probably heard this word precepts. And you read it in like Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. It talks about God's commands and precepts. It means God's commands. It's the way that God regulates 
his people. Think Ten Commandments, for instance. In the New Testament, you see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Like literally, God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. Literally. That is what, that's why we pray for each other's sanctification. So that we can be praying in accordance with God's will. So God's commands. And then there's the third one, dispositional will. Disposition, God's disposition. What pleases or displeases God. I'll give you a quick example. Ezekiel 18.4. God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. He says, The soul who sins shall die. And yet in verse 23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares Yahweh. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So on one side, God says, if you sin, you will die. And then on the next hand, God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And so therefore, there are some things that please God and other things that displease God. And that is God's dispositional will. God doesn't want people to die. But just because he doesn't want them to die does not mean that they don't die. Because there's three concepts of God's will. And when Jesus says, your will be done, what is he referring to? Well, he isn't talking about sentiments, like, hey, God will be happy if this happens. Nor is he talking about God's sovereign will, because remember, God's sovereign will always happens. Instead, he's praying for the preceptive will of God. That is, God, your will be done. People will obey your commandments. That's what he's praying for. Because notice he says, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what's going on in heaven right now? Well, the angels and the glorified believers are obeying God, serving God. There is no sin in heaven. There is no rebellion in heaven. And so, therefore, Jesus is encouraging us to pray, as there is no sin and rebellion in heaven, we are praying that among God's people, there would be sanctification and there would be no sin and no rebellion. We are praying for the kingdom of God to come and for God's people to be sanctified, for God's people to become holy. So that way his people will not be known as rebellious lawbreakers, but his people will be known as obedient children. Now you may say, oh, wait a minute. I thought God, you know, that sounds like legalism. Check it out. Paul was commissioned to be an apostle for the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith. We are tasked to go to the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching all that I've commanded. For what reason? So that people would obey. Repentance and faith comes first, and what follows is the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, which empowers us to live holy lives. So we're praying, God, Save people through the gospel. And once they are saved in the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit, cause them to live in faithful obedience. And in that way, God will get the glory. I'm out of time. <laughs> I have other verses which would be helpful, but you have to read it on your own time. That's extra credit. Before we go, let's stand together as a church and let us recite the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, pray then like this, 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God bless you guys. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.